Well, we've been working our way through the book of Acts. It's called the Acts of the Apostles. And the reason for that is it covers a time period from when Jesus goes back to heaven after he's been raised from the dead for about the next 35 years, what took place in the apostles' lives, all the things that took place. A lot more happens, but it gives us kind of the highlights. And so it gives us a peek into the history and the theology of the early church, what it is that they held so important, what is it that they believed. And so certainly there's a lot that the Lord wants to say to us. And so last time, two weeks ago, we were in Acts chapter 4. And one of the things that we've said, and we've been saying this each and every week, if you look at the top of your outline, each week we mentioned that Acts chapter 1 and 2 took place in, in the year 30 AD. And so you want to write that down, 30 AD. By the time we get to Acts chapter 5, it's going to be several years have gone by. And so you want to write down 35 AD. So some of these events, it'll tell you the next event, but sometimes there'll be a year or two in between those events. So it's going to be about 35 AD. The big question for me each week is what do you leave in and what do you leave out? Because uh, in, in the book of Acts and in every book of the Bible, there's always so much. And today's going to be a very big chunk of uh, information. So we're going to read through, make some comments as we go. And uh, so there on your, your outline, we've called this, did we call it purity, power, provision, and persecution? What do we call it? Okay, we'll go with that. Good. So... <laughs> I had to remove one of the words because uh, it didn't fit on my outline. Uh, it fits on this one here, but not there. And I'm standing up here going, now what word did I remove? So um, one of the things I, I wanted to share is that I grew up in the church. You grew up in the church, many of us. And one of the things that we find is that in Christianity, there are these things that we might describe as being urban legends. That is, there's no truth in it whatsoever, but it's been said and said and said. And so people just kind of accept it as being truth. Uh, for instance, uh, David and Goliath, you know, most of us have been taught that David was, you know, just a little boy, no military experience, and, you know, just real young. That's not true. If you look at David and Goliath, 1 Samuel chapter 17, uh, that's where Goliath shows up. But the chapter before that tells us that David was a mighty man of valor. He was uh, a man of unusual bravery. He was ferocious on the battlefield. But that's not the story that you typically hear. Okay, how many of you never heard that before? Anybody? Okay, so, so look at that. 1 Samuel 16, 1 Samuel 17, and you'll see that the story is, is very, very different. Well, one of the things that we also hear is that when Jesus was choosing his disciples, he went around and he chose these very poor people. For instance, you'll hear people say, you know, they were just poor fishermen. Oh, they were just barely making it, these poor fishermen. Well, the, that's not true. The, the reality is they were very affluent. It was a, a very prosperous uh, um, occupation. And uh, one of the things that we find, they were very well off financially. There in your outline, when Jesus calls the disciples who are fishermen, it says, without delay, he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men. I want you to underline with the hired men and followed him. So, so what we find is that Peter and James and John, they were part, their, their parents and Peter probably had his own thing going on, but they had uh, a number of employees. And in other passages, it tells us that they had a number of boats. This was a, a very prosperous business that they had. And so they, they were not poor in any way. 
So they didn't walk away from poverty to follow Jesus, but they walked away from prosperity to follow Jesus. Later on, you know the story, they encounter, they're following Jesus, they encounter this guy who's called the rich young ruler. And uh, you've probably heard the story. Uh, he comes to Jesus, what must I do to be saved? You know, follow the commandments, and they go through all that. And Jesus says, one thing you lack, you know, go, go sell everything and, and follow me. And he looks at Jesus and he looks at his stuff and he goes, I can't do that. I can't do that. And so he walks away and it's at that point that Peter turns to Jesus there with all the other guys and he says this. Peter began to say, uh, behold, we have left everything and followed you. They didn't leave poverty to follow Jesus. They left their business and employees and income and all of those great things to follow Jesus. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or farms. I've underlined that. That means businesses for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times much as much. And you want to underline that word now, now in the present age, in case we miss it. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, that's businesses. But then I want you to underline where it says, along with persecutions, along with persecutions. So these disciples, now apostles, walked away from a thriving business. And when you look at their occupation, you know, whether it was Matthew as the tax collector or, or the fisherman, these were thriving occupations. And so they, they had walked in abundance before. And Jesus says, if you've walked away from that, I want you to know that as you follow me, you're going to get that. You're going to get that. I'm not calling to a life of poverty. But he says at the end of that little paragraph, he says, but there will also be persecution. And hopefully you underline that. And uh, the reality is that you and I are created in the image of God and we love to bless our kids. And the reason that we love to bless our kids is because we are created in the image of God. And so God loves to bless his children. But he says, but here there's going to be blessing, but there's also going to be persecution. So uh, last week, you know, after Easter, if you've been watching the news, you saw that in Sri Lanka there was a bombing of Christians going to worship Jesus on Easter. And uh, a couple of days ago, the, the, the death toll was over 250, with over 500 people uh, ultimately being injured. You know, there's persecution, and that's just one of the things that we see. After that, Pastor Drew on Monday, on April 23rd, um, Newsweek came out with an article that says Christian persecution and genocide is worse now than at any time in history, a report says. And if you've been following what's happening in some of the other countries, like in Nigeria, Nigeria averages 125 Christians killed every month from groups like Boko Haram and other terrorist groups. So persecution is just, is, is just part of that. Well, even in the USA, I think that you will agree it's becoming more and more difficult to openly proclaim that you're a Christian. If you go to work and you say, hey, I'm a, I'm a Muslim, everybody's like, all right, we're not going to say anything. If you go, I'm a Hindu, I'm a Buddhist, like, oh, that's great, you know, I do this. But if you go, hey, I'm a born-again Christian, I follow Jesus, all of a sudden there's some hostility. Now, it's not as bad where I work, but you get the picture. <laughs> so today in this chapter, we're going to see blessing that God, Jesus promised along with persecution. 
and sometimes they go together. So we're going to pick it up in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. We left this off last time. It says, And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And uh, just making a note, it says, an abundant grace was upon them all. So what does it mean to have abundant grace upon them all? Well, the next word in my translation says for, or here's the illustration, there was not a needy person among them for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet and they would be distributed and they would be distributed to each one as they had need. And so uh, you have people who are, there's this abundant grace being poured out, this generosity being poured out here on the apostles and they're able to support all of the ministries that are going on in the church. Now one of the things that we tend to forget, if you look at the apostles, I want to put a map of Israel up. You'll remember that in the north part of Israel is the area called Galilee, and we've talked about that. So there's the Sea of Galilee, which is a large freshwater lake. Well, it's up there in the north where Jesus' ministry was held. That was primarily where he ministered. All of the disciples were called up there in the Galilee. You go down a little bit and you have this area called Samaria, and that's in the middle of Israel, and that's where the Samaritans live. And so their good Jewish people would go around that area so they wouldn't come in contact with Samaritans. But then you come down to the bottom part of Israel, and there's this area called Judea. And there in Judea, there is this town called Jerusalem. And so here we find the disciples are here in Jerusalem. Now the reason that's so important is that had Jesus left them up in Galilee, where they were all from, they had houses, they had businesses, they had families, they had all kinds of support. But Jesus has moved them down a hundred miles into a place where they're going to be facing a great deal of opposition. Uh, They'll still need to be, like in our world, they still need to pay rent, they need to buy houses, they need to buy groceries, you know, that that is just the normal stuff they had to do. So Jesus puts them out of their comfort zone and begins this great work, but to show them that he can bless them even in in this area. So here we find that it's coming to the apostles and they're distributing it as there is a need. Well, it goes on in verse 36 and it says, here's a specific story. It says, now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas. And this is going to be the introduction of Barnabas. We notice that his name is actually Joseph, but he was called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement. And he owned a tract of land and he sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So uh, Barnabas, his story is going to be told. Apparently a number of people did this, but his story is included because later on he's going to be the Barnabas who travels as a missionary with Paul. And uh, so we we see that story. But then you come to chapter 5, verse 1. And in my translation it begins with the word, but how many of your Bibles have something like that? Because that's the idea. You have Barnabas on the one hand, he's, he gives and, you know, and, and there's great blessing, and, but on the other hand, uh, it says a man uh, named Ananias and his wife Sapphira 
sold a piece of property. Now, I put that passage there on your outline, so I'm going to read it from the outline. And uh, it says, but, or on the other hand, a man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property and kept back. And you see that Greek word there, kept back. Uh, I won't try to pronounce it. Some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. When it says that he kept back, uh, in our language we say kept back, um, that word is only used two times in the New Testament. And there on your outline, nosphizomai, uh, it means to sequestrate for oneself, to embezzle, or to keep back, or it says purloin, that just means to steal. And the only other time that that, is, that word is used is when Paul is writing to Timothy, and he says, speaking of those in, in leadership in the church, and do not steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted. And so that word has a very negative connotation. So here, here's the idea. Barnabas goes, he sells it, and he brings it, lays it at the apostles' feet. Um, this Ananias goes and sells it, and he acts like he's bringing the whole thing. But the truth is he's not bringing the whole thing, and we'll see how uh, he, he wants everybody to think that he's acting uh, very sacrificially. Verse 3 it says, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to, and you want to underline, lie to the Holy Spirit? And to keep back some of the price of the land. And then Peter explains, he says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? I mean, this is your choice. Nobody made you do this. And after it was sold, was it not under your control? I mean, you could have said, hey, I've sold this piece of property, and I want to keep back a certain amount, and I want to give this to, the, give this to what God is doing. He says, was it not under your control? So why is it that you've conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And here we go, verse 5. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. I've underlined great fear came upon all who heard it. Friends, Ananias acted like he was a bigger giver than he was, and so God killed him. God bless to us the reading of his word. (laughs) So what is going on here? Well, Ananias shows up. He's expecting praise from Peter. And so Ananias did decide to sell a piece of property. And the problem wasn't that he held back some of that. That was his freedom to do that. Uh, He wanted everyone to think that he sold it for this amount and he was given the whole amount he was giving sacrificially. And, and uh, he's claiming that he's giving it all. And so here, it, Peter says, you're actually lying, not to men, but you're lying to the Holy Spirit. So go ahead and write this down. Ananias' sin was hypocrisy. And uh, he's apparently trying to uh, appear more spiritual. Hypocrisy is when we try to appear more spiritual than we are. The giving was not mandatory. This was not a tithe. This was something that somebody was doing in order to bless and participate what it is that God was doing. And when you, you go through, and the way that God responds to this, one of the things that you find as you go through the Gospels, there's one sin that bothered Jesus, uh, apparently, as, as you read it, uh, more than any other sin. 
You know, when you look at the Gospels, Jesus would eat with tax collectors, with prostitutes, with sinners, and that was never a problem. But then he would stand up and he'd say, woe to you Pharisees who stand on the street corner and pray. Anytime Jesus uses a woe, in most cases, he's pointing to somebody who's doing their best to look a lot more spiritual than they are. Does it bother you when people try to look more spiritual than they are? Here's how it works out in my life. Like, I'll go to lunch with somebody, and uh, they'll want to pray for the meal. And they start praying, Oh, Heavenly Father, we bless, you ask you to, you know, beseech you to bless this meal today. We pray for those around the world. We pray, and on and on and on. And after about a minute or so, I just start eating. I just, I just reach in. <laughs> and they look at me and they go, What are you doing? I go, No, I already had my prayer time this morning, you know, so you apparently have a lot of catching up to do, so I'm just going <laughs> to keep going. All right, I've never done that, but I, but I have thought about it a couple of times. <laughs> One day I will. One day I will. So I'm with Jesus on this. Uh, When people try to look more spiritual than they are, that really bugs him. Well, verse 3, Peter said to Ananias, he says, uh, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You know, one of the things that Ananias forgot, and if we're not careful, and there's a reason for this story here, is that Ananias forgot that it's the Holy Spirit. And uh, he treated the Holy Spirit very, very cheaply. And this is a very graphic message, I think, for us all. One of the things that we find, and you want to write this down, is that God's power is always connected to purity. This word where Ananias holds back is only mentioned three times in the Bible. We saw in Timothy where it's mentioned, but it's also mentioned back in the Greek manuscript of the Old Testament, all the way back in Joshua 7. I put Joshua 7 there, and you can read it later on. But Joshua, they're told as they go into Jericho, they're not to touch anything. Don't just, let, just don't touch it as they take over Jericho. But there's this man named Achan, and he goes in, and he sees just a small thing, just a tiny little thing, and he decides to take it. And as you know the story, what it did, it was, seemed like a very small thing, but it removed power from the whole nation, and there was great consequences. It's something that God takes very serious. So, so this hypocrisy uh, is something that there was a very graphic illustration of that back in uh, Joshua 7. You can read it later, and, um, but, but here there's another very graphic illustration of this. So Ananias falls down dead, and you can bet that everybody who saw that would be very surprised at this. Probably the person who was surprised the most was Peter. Because when you look at verse 4, it says, while well, he, Peter's talking about remained unsold, did you not have it? And after it was sold, and it wasn't under your control, why is it you've conceived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. And then all of a sudden, at that point, Ananias dies. Peter doesn't say, this is God's judgment on you. Uh, This is something that God did in the middle of Peter's conversation. So Peter was probably very, very surprised. Now that's important because some take this and they would say that Peter pronounced judgment. That's not anywhere in this. Peter's talking and all of a sudden this is a judgment that comes from God. There is no place where the church is ever given the authority to uh, exercise capital judgment or capital uh, uh, capital uh, 
punishment on anybody, on anybody. So when you read that, know that Peter's not making a judgment. God is. Peter's just telling him the story. Does that make sense? Verse 6. So the young men got up and covered him, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Well, there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And uh, just one of the things, we won't talk about it, but you want to write it down, Satan always keeps his workers in the dark. So she doesn't have any idea that this has taken place. Verse 8, and Peter responded to her, tell me whether you sold this land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, why is it that you've agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out as well. Peter realizes at this point, this is what's going to happen. And immediately she fell dead. She fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. I've always seen this picture in my mind where uh, Ananias falls dead. There's a couple of men. Peter, can, can you go bury him? And in the Hebrew world, they, they bury the same day. They go out. They're missing the church service. They go out and they bury him. They come back to the church service. And there she falls down dead. And they're like, ah, you know, we're, no, we're never going to get to go to church. So I just find that interesting. Verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and over all who heard these things. So you go from great grace in chapter 4 to great fear. Now when we think of fear, I didn't put this on your outline, but let me put this verse on your screen. There on the screen. There it is. Everyone who heard of these things had a healthy respect for God. Fear in the Bible is reverence for God. It caused them to say, you know, he's God and he loves us, but don't play games with them is the idea. You don't want to do that. Well, um, verse 12 and 13, it says, and the hands of the apostles, at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. You know, one of the things that we find in the early church, whenever church is mentioned, and you want to write this down, is that the first church uh, wasn't a church for seekers. It wasn't a church for seekers. When it says none of the rest dared to associate with them, that would be the non-believers. And uh, the word got out that you didn't take God lightly, that church was for committed believers. And so you, you, you find that throughout the New Testament. Well, verse 14 and 15, and it says, Now all the more, and all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number to such an extent that they even carried the sick out onto the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least a shadow might fall on any one of them, any one of them. So you have says multitudes are coming in. Some are walking away saying, I don't want it, but multitudes are coming in. But it says that some, they were even bringing, uh, let me read the last part of verse 15, uh, to the extent that even they carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets, so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. They believed that if they could get their sick person and Peter even pass by, 
that they believed that even his shadow could have an effect. Now there's a couple of things we need to just mention. First of all, it doesn't say that anybody was healed by doing that. And uh, we, we read that into that. I would hold that people were healed. So it seems to be it's there for a reason. Um, but it was a trigger of their faith. They believed so much that they would bring their people from other towns and villages to the place, and they believed that even if Peter's shadow overpassed them, that they would be healed. Do you remember the lady in the Gospels who said she had the issue of blood, and she said, if I just touch the hem of his garment. And what you find is that three out of four miracles that take place in the Gospels all have the phrase, all have the phrase, your faith. Be it done to you according to your faith. Your faith has made you well. And so this was the point of contact for their faith. They believed, and so they were receiving their healings. That, that would be the way that we would understand that. Verse 16, it says, and also the people from cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were, and I've underlined, sick or afflicted with unclean spirits. And you might want to underline that. And they were all being healed. So here's what this tells us. The apostles believed. It says those who were sick or afflicted of unclean spirits. The apostles believe that sickness can have a physical or spiritual source. And, and it tells us that, that both were, were involved. Um, there are two mistakes that we make in the church world. And usually each church is in a camp. The, the first camp says that every time somebody's sick, it's a demon. And uh, so they spend a lot of time casting out demons or, or spiritual forces. Well, the Bible does say that that can be true. The other side of the church, but that can be a mistake because they rule out medical conditions. The other side of the church, the mistake that they make is they say it's all medical. It's, it's just, you know, we need, we need a doctor, a therapist, or whatever because it's, it's, it's all medical. Well, it, it can be one, it can be the other, it can be both somehow, some way working together. But, but the reality is we live in a fallen world. But never rule out the spiritual side. And if you're on the side that thinks it's always a demon, never <laughs> rule out the fact that it could be a medical condition. But it will be the name of Jesus that deals with both. The part that I wanted to just highlight very quickly, and there on your outline where it says, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits and all, underline, of them were healed. All of them were healed. If you need healing today from the Lord, healing from the Lord begins when you come to the place where you believe that God wants you healed. They believed that God wanted them healed. So they brought their sick and God healed them. Uh, you will not find in the book of Acts anywhere where God's saying, I want to heal this one, this one, this one, but I don't really want to heal that one. Now certainly we live in a fallen world and not everybody gets healed, but never say God wants me sick. You, you won't find that. You won't find that. We'll deal with that as we go. So far so good? So there's incredible blessing. God's doing great things. And then verse 17, my translation says, but, how many of your Bibles say that? That's always a great thing. But, so now we know that there's a, 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 a different mood here. The high priest rose up with all of his associates. 
That is the sect of the Sadducees. They want us to know that they're Sadducees. And they were filled with jealousy. Uh, Jealousy in the sense that people are going to the church. They're not going to the religious leadership there. Uh, Nothing's really going on there, but lots happening at the church. So people are going to the apostles. Now, it tells us that they were Sadducees. And so every time that comes up, we always say, Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in the afterlife. They did not believe in anything supernatural. And they did not believe in angels. And that's going to be important for our story. So verse 18, it says, they laid hands on the apostles and put them, and just notice it's the apostles. Last time it was Peter and John. They laid hands on the apostles. This time it's all of them. Put them in a public jail. And during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison and taking them out, he said, go stand and speak to the people in the temple, and I've underlined temple, the whole message of this life. You want to underline the whole message of this life. And upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and they began to teach. All of our Bibles say teach. I want you to underline that. We'll talk about that. So uh, again, last time there was an arrest, it was Peter and it was John. Here all of the apostles are arrested. Uh, there's a little bit of divine humor here we missed. It was probably more, uh, more funny in my office, but Sadducees don't believe in angels. So you get the sense that in heaven, Jesus is like, you, you want me to go and open up the prison? And God's like, no, no, this would be great. Send an angel. They don't even believe in angels. So I, I just find that funny. So, and so he says, go speak into the temple, go right into the temple. That's going to be the center of religious activity. And I want you to speak the whole message, the whole message. Now there on your outline, I like it from the NIV because it brings out what's really being said here. It says, tell the people the full message of this new life. And so here's what the angel commands, and just write it down. Tell the full message of this new life. Full message of this new life. Now this is important because uh, if you're like me, I grew up in a certain church, uh, a number of different churches, but early on from the time I was five to I was about nine years old, our church, we focused in on salvation. So every Sunday morning, it was a salvation message. And so it was just salvation, salvation, salvation. And uh, that's great. But this new life is more than just salvation. And and then later on, going into a camp where it was all about the Holy Spirit, the manifestation of the Holy Spirit, the experience of the Holy Spirit. And and that's great. I learned wonderful things there. But it's more than, than just the experience of the Holy Spirit. And then in another environment I was in, it was all about faith, believing God, confessing, using your words. And it was a lot of really great things. And it's certainly something missing in our genre because some are weird. Uh, We've thrown out what the Bible speaks uh, for the most part. But to that group, I would say it's more than just that. And so when the angel says, I want you to go tell the full message of this new life, what he's saying there is that it's more than just our thing that we focus in on. And uh, so I appreciate the fact that we get to go through the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and as we do that, we get to talk about all the things that the Bible talks about. And sometimes we stop and we focus in on certain subjects, but we get to cover it all. And I love doing that, and and I'm glad you showed up, so that, that always helps. But Notice there on your outline, Paul would say, we're to grow up in all aspects of him 
who is the head, even Christ. And one of the things that's sad in church world is we tend to focus in on our thing, and each church tends to be defined by that. So I I love that we get to do this. And in verse 21, it says that they went to the temple, hearing this, they went to the temple about daybreak and began to teach. And what I love there, and what we're going to see in uh, verse 21, 25, and 28, is that their primary activity will be teaching, will be teaching. Well, it continues on, they've been busted from prison, and verse 21, the second part of that verse, it says, now when the high priest and his associates came and called the council together, and all the senate and the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison, uh, prison house for them to be brought, but the officers who came did not find them in the prison, and they returned and reported back, saying, now we found the prison house locked and quite secure, and the guards standing at the doors, but when we had opened up, we found no one inside. And so now when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. And I've underlined what would come of this. As we've said in previous studies, uh, there are no believers in this meeting. But the reason that we know that that was their discussion, what would come of this, is because some of those people who knew their Bible, saw the miracles, heard the teaching, ultimately became believers, and they recounted that to the apostles later on. So we've seen that. Verse 25, it says, But someone came and reported to them, The men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple teaching the people. And I've underlined teaching the people. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. So the the apostles are very popular here with the people. And so although they arrested them yesterday, they realize if they try to do that today, uh, the people are going to rise up and these guys genuinely could get stoned. And uh, I've always loved that. And in my mind, I picture these things and I see the, the temple guard coming up and going up to Peter and going, hey, I, I, um, I, I, you know, I know we arrested you yesterday and um, we don't know how you got out, but somehow you did and you're here. And we were wondering if you would mind, if it wouldn't be such an inconvenience, could, could you come back and just talk to the religious leaders for a few minutes? They just want to clear some things up. Would you do that for us so they don't get stoned? So they do, they go. So... Verse 27, it says, And when they had brought them, they stood before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, now, we, It says, We gave you strict orders. Now, a couple of things you want to highlight. Strict orders not to continue teaching. They know what the apostles are doing. That was their emphasis. In this name. Does your Bible say this name? This name. We'll come back to that. And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. This man's blood upon us. It's interesting because um, they don't even want to say the name of Jesus. It's been five years. It's not the first time that the apostles have been before them, uh, but they don't even want to say it. This man, you're teaching in this name, this man. Did you notice that none of the religious leaders ask the apostles, they don't say, and, and, and by the way, um, how did you get out of the prison? They don't even ask that question because truth is not really what they're looking for at this point. So they said, we gave you strict orders. Well, verse 29, Peter and the apostles, now Peter will be the main spokesman, but the apostles are speaking. We must obey God rather than man. We'll come back to that. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, uh, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. 
and he's the one whom God exalted at his right hand as a prince and savior to grant repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. We actually saw it. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Um, Interesting there, Peter never misses the opportunity to throw it in their face that they did this. You hung him on the cross. But he always includes the death, the burial, and the resurrection anytime he has the opportunity. But they said, we gave you strict orders. And uh, what Peter practices here is something that we see throughout Scripture. He practices what's called civil disobedience. We told you not to, we're the government, and you've done this. And uh, that's something that you see throughout the Bible, you know, that where people will, will have to choose God over the government. So a couple of things. First of all, the apostles on civil disobedience, won't spend a lot of time on this, it must be carried out with scriptural authority. And uh, so Peter says, we must obey God rather than men. The angel came to them that morning and said, go to the temple and preach. And Jesus had already said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. So they have a mandate from God, which is greater than what it is that man is saying. And then it must always be carried out with humility. And so in verse 26, it says, they did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. Peter and the guys realized that they could have started a riot and they could have won. But when you do civil disobedience as a Christian, you always have to do that with humility. So verse 33, it continues and it says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, and you want to underline that, Gamaliel, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. Now Gamaliel is somebody that we're going to hear about later. Paul would say at the end of the book of Acts, he would say, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia and brought up in the city, educated under Gamaliel. Uh, there's a good chance that Paul the Apostle is in this meeting. He's not saved at this point, but he's in this meeting. So Gamaliel says, put them out, let's, let's have a talk. He said to them, men of Israel, take care what you, propose, what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Theodos, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, rose up claiming to be somebody in a group of about 400 men joined up with him and he was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and it came to nothing. And after this, After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away a number of people after him, and he too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So in this case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan of action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it's from God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. So they took his advice. Well, kind of, we'll see. Uh, after calling the apostles in, they flogged him. Some of your Bibles say beat them. You want to underline that. And they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then release them. Name release them. Another thing about civil disobedience that you find in the Bible is not only scriptural authority and humility, but you also have to understand that sometimes there are consequences. And so you want to write down, you must be willing to accept the consequences. So we see that in the apostles. In my Bible it says flogged. Some of your Bibles will say beaten. I put the word there on your outline. It means to flay the skin, to flay skin, beat, throb, or smite. 
The word flay means to peel the skin off. That's what it means. The idea is that what took place would scar the apostles literally for the rest of their life. And uh, so they were willing to go through that. Verse 41 says, So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Um, so that it continues. And we're going to pick it up there next week. Did you find that interesting today? Good. Uh, it goes into the next chapter, and so the conclusion is in the next chapter, so we're going to pick it up there next week. But uh, interesting stuff. Well, let's go ahead and uh, close in prayer today. Father, thank you for this story. And Lord, we see that there's blessing, and then there's persecution. There's healing, which is something that you desire for us, and uh, we see that throughout this book And so, Father, I pray that you bring each and every one of us to the place in whatever situation we're in that your desire for us is to be made whole. And we realize that that's the beginning. That's the starting point. And so we look forward to what it is that you're going to be doing in so many of us as we travel through this book. Thank you for this congregation. Keep us till we meet again. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, see you next time.